You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, a writer, entrepreneur, and change maker, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. You just heard a great original composition by my son, Asher Schreiber. This podcast highlights some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet on this podcast. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and today I'm speaking with Amy Heimerl, who has many illustrious roles, not only a Michigan State University professor of journalism and a book author, but also the founder and leader of Shady Ladies Literary Society, which is a wonderful organization here in Detroit. And so I'd like to welcome you on the podcast, Amy. Thanks so much for having me, Lynn. It's really great to be here. It's really an honor. So thank you for making time. I wonder if you could start by just telling our listeners a little bit about Shady Ladies, um, where the idea came from, what it is, and maybe how they can get involved. Sure. So Shady Ladies is, I like to say, you know, it's really a four-part quiz. Okay. Do you like good food? Yes. Okay. Do you like good booze? Oh, yes. A good conversation? Yes. Do you believe in the power of women's voices and our stories? Absolutely. Then you too are a Shady Lady. Woohoo! Now, there is a bonus question. Are you a man who likes any of these things? And I know many who do, yes. And they too are shady ladies, or as we call them, are shady gentlemen. So we're really a platform for elevating women's voices. It started with literature, bringing in women authors to Detroit and pairing them with women chefs and bartenders for, you know, literary dinner parties and unforgettable locations. But now we're pairing women scientists and bartenders and just trying to really create this platform. And we say everybody is welcome, but we center women's voices on the stage. That's amazing. And tell me a little bit about some of the guests that you've had, um, both in the Chemist Club is what you're calling the, the Chemistry Club, Chemistry absolutely. Club, and in um, Shady Ladies. So tell me a little bit about some of the guests. So we launched Chemistry Club last month with our first ever uh, scientist. She's an atmospheric chemist from the University of Michigan. Wow. And she talked to us all about how uh, climate change is actually impacting the Great Lakes. And so the algae blooms you're seeing are actually result of runoff and climate change and what we can do about it. So it was a really great sort of sobering speech, but also how can you actually do something about it, which is nice. Yeah. Um, we are in this month having uh, another professor from U of M. So even though I teach at state, I still allow University of Michigan <laughs> people to come and play. You're egalitarian. I'm very egalitarian. <laughs> Go blue and green. Yeah. Um, she is a professor of complex systems and she's going to talk about about cryptocurrency and blockchain and help us understand everything we need to know about that new economy. Wow. Um, but from a literary side, we've been g- 
so blessed we're featuring Elaine Castillo, the author of the novel uh, America's Not the Heart this uh-huh. month. Uh-huh. We've had Tomi Adeyemi, whose debut novel, uh, Children of Blood and Bone, was fire. So she has been all over the place. It's an amazing dystopian YA novel. Uh-huh. I don't usually promote YA novels, but this one was just amazing. Yeah. Tara Westover, whose uh, memoir, Educated, was on President Obama's best, you know, most read list for the summer. Uh-huh. Uh, Zenzi Clemens, Darwin. Williams, a singer-songwriter yeah. from the 90s, so uh-huh. who's you know been back out on tour. So we've had a, a real variety of artists, and it's been amazing to hear them tell their stories uh, and what it means for them to be shady ladies. Yeah, well, I was so excited to discover this wonderful organization and to get to know you a little bit. Um, and I've only attended the Tara Westover, and I'll be at Elaine's event coming oh, up. Um, but what I loved was that you were really featuring Detroit in so many different ways. So while you're bringing in an author who's sharing her experience and her voice from wherever, um, we are in a Detroit locale. We were having Detroit cocktails from a local mixologist, and we're having Detroit food from local chefs, and a lot of it locally grown. Um, but it all sort of related to the book as well. So I loved like your mom's jam. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you arrange the whole atmosphere oh, of the sure. events too? So yeah, so I bring in authors from somewhere else because I want them to see this amazing city that is Detroit. So it introduced Detroiters to these authors at the beginning of their career. But so that pairing is really important to me. So I look at the book and I look at the author and say, what's the right location and who's the right chef, female chef, emerging chef who can make this and a bar tender who's going to create a drink based on the book that's going to be fabulous. And how does that all come together to show off the best that is Detroit and from just sort of a such a diverse range, just like Michigan offers. So I love working with all kinds of our local producers. Chef uh, Enrico Gadia from uh, Gabriel Hall did our last dinner and she is very much a Southern Creole Cajun chef, but she cooked for Tara and she translated the tastes of Tara's home state of Idaho through a Detroit lens. So we had these sweet potato empanadas and these trout coquettes and somehow they felt very Detroit and also felt very Idaho. So I, you know, try to really bring in those partners that show off our talent in the state. It's amazing. It's so creative. And I, I just can't see, I can't wait to see where you take it. I think it has so much potential and, and could go in so many directions. So I, I'm a big fan. I'm on Thank board. Um, so I want to also transition and talk a little bit about the other work that you do. Um, so I know um, that you're a professor of journalism and we're in very interesting journalistic times um, with, you know, fake news and questions of credibility and, um, so many people thinking that they can tell a story without any training. So tell me a little bit about how you approach the teaching of journalism in this day and age and and what you're hoping for from that. So I think that oftentimes people think that there are no jobs in journalism or no future in journalism. And the thing I like to tell my students is that it's just changing and how we distribute news and content is changing. And that's been the story of our industry since the days of the papyrus scrolls. So every time we look, we've had, you know, gone from scrolls and then there are printing presses and eventually we get to radios and televisions and we're just really going much more rapidly with that iteration and evolution these days, which can make it feel very scary. I think we have to be nimble and ready for those jobs to change. And to do that, we have to just really train on the key skills of our job, which is to be the way, the truth, and the light. To really look at 
what are our ethics? What do we do as journalists? How do we differ from bloggers? What are our moral, ethical responsibilities? How do we always ensure that, not that we're just getting both sides, but that we're actually going and seeking truth and trying to bring that back, be the eyes and the ears of our readers in places and times when they cannot be there themselves. I love that. I love that. You know, it's funny. I, I hired somebody a few years ago um, to be a social media strategist for me, developing content. Um, and she was very, very young, had just graduated from college. Um, and so she grew up digitally, but, um, I don't know that she learned the strategy or the philosophy behind that kind of engagement and storytelling. Um, and in fact, I had asked her, she's a really smart young woman, really amazing. Um, I asked her if she could handle some e-blasts for clients. And I got this blank stare because she was not from an era of email. So she had no, <laughs> I, I had to stop and say, wait, do you understand why? We might use an email blast as a marketing tool, and she really did not. No. So I do no. think it's a new language. It's a new era of telling stories in new ways. Um, but the while they may be adept at different tools, the philosophy has to catch up to it. Right. You know? We have to tell the stories. We're looking for what is newsworthy, having good news judgment, being able to understand who your audience is. I'm teaching a feature writing class, and I think, what, we're seven weeks in now, and we've written one Q&A <laughs> um, because they're getting really tired of me you know, honing in on what's your audience and what's the news right now. What's your audience? What's the news? And like, well, I just want to write this story. I'm like, but why do I care? <laughs> right. Who's the audience who's going to care about this in hopes that if they can start thinking about who am I trying to reach with this information, not that we are all inside of our own bubbles, but you have to really think about Rolling Stone is going to approach a story differently yeah. than Vibe and the New York Times approaches it differently than the free press because you have slightly different audiences you're trying to reach and understanding that and I think there's a really strong need for media education right now. I, mm -hmm. I I talk about that a lot in Detroit here where we get so many reporters coming in from other media outlets doing stories about Detroit. Right. And on the one hand, yes, they can be a little bit like we call it parachute journalism. They jump in <laughs> and then they tell the same, you know, highlight the same five places over and over again. And right. that's terrible. But at the same time, we have to understand who's the audience. And for the New York Times or for Bon Appetit, it's a national audience. And so you can only write so deep that somebody in Phoenix would care. Right. right. And I always say, how much do you care about Phoenix? Right. <laughs> Most people say not at all. And that's not me being me. I, I like Phoenix. Love you, Phoenix. No problems. <laughs> but so if we're going to read about Phoenix, they have to do the same thing for us to care right. enough about Phoenix. So what is that sort of education around audience so that we understand not – even though we're distributed mostly through social media now, that's where we get most of our news. So you yeah. can read anything from anywhere at any time. Sure. That doesn't actually mean it was – written for us. And right. so how do we balance those things out? Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I know that you have a, a memoir out, um, I do. Detroit Hustle. Um, and that was about rehabbing a house. Is yep. that right? Tell me so, about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life and home, which that just makes me want to stab my eyeball out. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, that was the deal I made with my publisher. I took that uh, title on it. I like to trust Detroit Hustle, not the memoir of love, life and home part in okay. exchange for them putting the actual picture of my house on the cover because the first cover I got for the book had somebody else's house on oh it. Oh, my gosh. But, like dilapidated with a rainbow on it. And they were like, but this looks like Detroit. Oh, like, gosh. That's not my house. Ouch. That's awful. Yeah, so it's weird. Um, but so it's a memoir. It started out. As a blog, just okay. writing home for people in New York and Mississippi and Colorado, everywhere I've lived about buying this house with my husband here in Detroit when we decided to stay here after a fellowship at the University of Michigan instead uh -huh. of going back to New York. Uh -huh. um, 
And it just sort of grew into this idea that maybe this could be a, a book about this house. And then sort of Detroit entered bankruptcy and it became these two narratives, one about what it takes to rehab a house in a city where there are no less than 10 percent of homes get mortgages. There's very little funding available for right. rehab in a city where you have you know floods of homes that need it. Right. And at the same time, the city kind of going through similar issues through its bankruptcy, trying to figure out how do we rebuild this when there's not a lot of resources for that. Yeah. So it really is about the house, but it's really about, you know, how do you go from being an us, you know, to uh, from a them to an us, an uh-huh. outsider to a, uh, you know, an insider, a you know, newcomer to a place where this is home? How do you make yourself at home and be a part of a new community? Oh, I love it. I love it. How long have you been here in Detroit? So we've been in Detroit five years and Michigan six. Does it feel like home yet? So Detroit's always felt like home. I'm still making my peace with Michigan. Yeah? yeah. How so? Just for what, what So I, I I identified with Detroit right off the bat, but Mich- I never felt like a Michigander. And I'm from Colorado. So, okay. I mean, poor Michigan. You're, it's beautiful, but I'm also like, no, where sorry. are the mountains? Like, yeah, but you also have like 300 days a year of sunshine. Of sunshine and so we do not. Getting used like to the, third yeah, of that. the low winter sun is, a, is real, man. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Yes, I, I can relate. I actually dated somebody in college from Denver. And he pointed that out. He gave me that statistic, which I never forgot. Yeah. But I grew up here. So I'm like, what do you mean it's not sunny enough? And then when I went to visit him, I'm like, oh, I get it. I get it. And yeah. I wish I had this. So, yeah. so, but while I, I love Colorado, Michigan and Detroit are now home. So Wonderful. I've, I've adopted this place and, and hope that it has adopted me. That is very cool. That, that's wonderful. So, you know, on this um, podcast, we talk about how people make meaning in their lives and find purpose in their work. Um, I almost feel like it's a redundant question because you're doing so many wonderful <laughs> things. But I wonder what your thoughts are on that, on, you know, uh, building a meaningful life, finding purpose um, on your path. You know, what are your thoughts and your experiences? I mean, finding meaning is such an interesting and like, you know, unique question for every person and where they, they find that. For me, I've always been busy. Uh-huh. And so it, for me to do something, it has to have meaning. It's got, it, there has to be a bigger mission in any work I've ever done. Sure. Uh, it's part of the reason why I became a journalist because it was this idea that we could watchdog the government. I could, you know, be the, the voice for the voiceless. So that inherently yeah. what I've always wanted to do was sort of that very meaning and mission driven work. And so that comes naturally to me. I think that. You know, I talk to my students a lot. I'm first generation of my family to go to college. I'm one of the wow. only cousins to graduate from high school. Wow. So, you know, I look at it and I say, growing up, I just wanted to get to the top. Uh-huh. I didn't really know what the top was. Sure. But I, so in some ways, there's like this great mission and meaning. And part of it is my background just being like, no, we keep pushing always because yeah. there's something new to be done and some new project to work on. And I tend to find really great people around me who uh-huh. then by nature of it being collaborative like that bring bring meaning so sure. i feel like finding that meaning and in this place in my life is shifting which is interesting because i've always like what do you do when you get to the top right yeah i you know i remember that i i had set a goal for myself that i wanted to have my first book published by the time i was 30 and um i graduated from my mfa in writing i think i was 25 or 26 something like that and my master's thesis was a, a poetry manuscript and um the publisher accepted it and published it in time for graduation wow so i was like oh my gosh this right. is my dream and then after graduation i was like oh 
what do I do now? You need know, to yeah. set a new goal. Yeah. Um, which is a wonderful problem to have. Right. It's such a wonderful problem to have. You know, I wanted to get to the top of journalism and I did New York media and I discovered I actually don't like that world. I like local journalism better. So you sort of get the thing you think you always wanted and then realize, oh, maybe that's not doesn't have the meaning I thought it was going to. And now I'm here in Detroit and I'm not working as a reporter. And so that's weird. I'm working as faculty and yeah. being able to teach. So I find meaning in that. But I'm also dealing with a lot of you know, structure around identity and who I am in a world right now where media is so important, but I'm not as much of a, a practitioner right now. Right. Um, but I am helping to shape the next generation. So I feel like, you know, I, I wish I had such a better answer. But the truth is, like, I'm in the middle of figuring it out right now for myself. Like, what is going to be the meaningful thing or driving force for the next phase of my career. Which is a lifelong journey. Yes. You know, it's like once you answer the question, you then have to ask it again. Yes, exactly. You know, um, so that's really interesting. You know, I, I find that um, when you said you like local journalism better than big national, I, I remember, and I'm, I'm apologizing that I don't remember her name, but there's a journalist in Alaska in a very small town. I think she's an NPR journalist, um, and she published a book of her columns maybe for the local paper. Um, there's, It's just like a teeny, teeny little remote town. Um, and it was so powerful. And I thought, what a fabulous job she has because it's the breath of the community. Right. And I do think that while it may be paying pennies to work at some little community paper would be so fulfilling because you really understand the fabric of of that community. And there is so much meaning in being very local and and very present. Absolutely. So my my dad and my brother and my sister-in-law and nieces all live in uh, rural Montana. Okay. And there's a newspaper for sale. My dad's like, oh. hey, I found your newspaper. Why don't you just come <laughs> to get this? You just come do this. I'm like, dad, I'm not moving to Montana. He's like, well, no, like he wants to sell it. And it's got this great history of like suing the government all the time and rabble rousing. It's perfect for you, daughter. He's like, I have a plan. I'm like, you always have a plan for me. He's like, yes. And I'm always right. Get over here. <laughs> yes, dad. Well, it's wonderful to be so loved and so supported. I'm very lucky to have my father. Yes. That is fantastic. Well, I am so grateful that you've been here um, to speak with me about making meaning on the podcast today. Oh, it's such a joy to get to be invited. Yes. Well, Amy Heimerl, thank you. And I can't wait to see where you go with Shady Ladies and everything else that you're doing. Thank you, Lynn.